Let's pray. God, I thank you for what you have already done and what you are continuing to do in our lives and in the life of this church, in the life of this this family that you are building, that you're bringing together, that you're drawing closer and closer together. God, I thank you that that these songs that we're singing are so so gospel-focused, so so weighted heavily with these ideas of your love for us in spite of who we are and the steps that you've taken to to show us that love, to show us that you're going to do what it takes to to, to bring us in close to you. You're, You're doing all of this for us. And God, I just thank you for this constant reminder of how much you love us and how much you, you have fought for us. And God, I just pray that, that more than anything else that comes from this morning, if we, if we feel more heavily the weight and the truth of the gospel, that would be all that I ask. That, that God, you would, you would just help us to love the gospel, love that story, that, that truth that you so love us, that you've, you've taken all of these steps to draw us to yourself. God, thank you for who you are and what you have done, and I pray that you will continue to work among us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to actually finish the chapter this week. So you can start turning there. I really do, I love how all of those songs, and I know we talk about this all the time, but I just love how the songs that we sing so perfectly transition right into the things that we're going to preach because because so rooted in the gospel, and hopefully the things that we're preaching are so rooted in the gospel that, that it just kind of seamlessly transitions from one to another. And I think, especially, there was a line in that second song that we sang about being adopted as sons and daughters of God, that I just, I love that idea, and I want you to hold on to that idea, because we're going to get back to that idea really hard by the time we get done today. We're really going to talk a lot about what it looks like to have the gospel impact us and what what it actually means to be kind of brought together into the family of God. But before that, we still have have some more interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees that we kind of have to get through. Because through this whole chapter, Jesus has been performing all of these miraculous things, revealing himself again to still be God, to still be this Messiah that has been promised, this one that we have been waiting for, And at every step of the way, the Pharisees see the things that he's doing, but instead of being amazed by who it is and worshiping God because the Messiah has come, we continue to see them try to manipulate the minds of the people, undermine what Jesus is doing, and instead attribute all the work that he's doing not to the power of God, but saying he's working for the enemy, he's working for Satan. And we talked last week about how that comes from from a different heart, a heart that doesn't know God, a heart that, that can't understand the truth of who God is. And how you can see the same thing happening in two, from two different perspectives and come to completely different conclusions purely based on whether or not the Holy Spirit is in you interpreting for you what it is that you're seeing. When you're reading the Bible, the Holy Spirit 
Spirit is helping you interpret, understand what is actually being said there. And you can come to such completely different places just based on whether or not you have the gospel work at work in you. And so still, as we're going to see for the rest of this chapter, the Pharisees still are kind of working against Jesus. They're asking for him, they're going to continue to, today, they're going to ask him to perform some extra miracle, perform some one more sign for us. But when they're doing these things, I don't want us to think that they're just trying to, like, they're almost there. They just need a little bit more proof. Because like we've seen through this whole chapter, the Pharisees are still trying to kind of undercut what Jesus is trying to accomplish at every turn. So if you're in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 38. And I'm going to read, I'm just going to start here, and I'm going to read through verse 42. Uh, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So let's just look at that interaction here for just a second and try to figure out why was it so wrong for them to say, if you're God, go ahead and show us again something that you can do that will confirm to us that you are God. First of all, completely overstepping the point that he's already been performing these kinds of acts for, for weeks and months and at this point. Like, they've had plenty of opportunities to see the things that Jesus is doing and, and repent as he's saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. Look at all these things that are happening. Prophecies are being answered. I'm fulfilling all of these things that you've been reading about for years and years and years and years and years. And they still have not repented. In fact, he's even made a point of saying, all of you people who have seen these things and continue to not repent, the judgment is going to be so hard on you because you had this right in front of your eyes and yet you still have not repented. So so what are they actually asking for? And why is Jesus so quick to say an evil generation would ask for a sign? Well, when they're saying a sign, what is it that they're asking for? Because he's already been casting out demons and he's already been performing all of these different works. Well, what I think that they're asking him to do is something that can kind of eliminate the need for them to have faith that he is God. They want to see something originated not from within him, but something that God does that kind of confirms to them that he is God. He is who he says he is. I mean, I was thinking back to something like when Elijah called down fire from heaven. It's not like the fire came from him. The fire came from heaven. So obviously he was working with God. This is kind of the thing that I think they're looking for. And because all of these miracles, the healings and stuff are kind of coming from within Jesus, they can keep, they're, they're, they're continually discrediting him and trying to say he's not working for God. And so they're asking him to do something in a way, like, 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 tell God to do something on his behalf so that then they would trust that he is who he says he is. But, but what they're really doing is they're, is they're trying to eliminate the need for them to have faith that he is who he says he is. To, to trust him 
They're trying to get some extra rock-solid evidence so that they can put their, their hope and their trust in the rock-solid evidence, in, in the actions that are being presented to them so that they can trust that because they aren't willing to trust this guy. They aren't willing to just have faith that he is who he says he is. And I think we do that. I think, I think there are definitely times that we can't quite understand either some biblical truth that we're reading about while we're, while we're studying or we come across you know, some difficult times, some difficult circumstances, and we just need God to show us that he's going to be the God who we think he is and he's going to kind of take these things away. And we can't, we can't really wrap our brains around why he's doing what he's doing. And it's easy to just not trust him because we don't have this kind of concrete evidence that he's, he is who he says he is. And so we say, I need, I need some proof. I need, I need either some really good argument or I need some really good set of evidence. I need to, I need to dive into all of this history and archaeology. And I'm not saying we shouldn't like study things and understand facts. But, but when, we, when we look at when we look at those kinds of pieces of evidence being presented to us as believers, we're not looking at those to confirm whether or not we should believe in Christ. We're looking at those to strengthen our faith and say, man, look at how Jesus has already built this stuff up and look at how all of this continues to point to him. But like we've already been talking about, that's coming from a mind that's had its eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. We can see those things and say, look at what Jesus has done. And we understand that all of these things are pointing us back to Christ. But what Jesus is saying is, if you need some piece of physical proof, if you need this piece of evidence, if you need something, something tangible, physical, to really be the thing that's going to convince you that you should follow me, then that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people who love me, who are placing their faith and hope and trust in me. This is still a thing that we have to struggle with today because we don't physically have Jesus walking around with us here today. What we have are his people, his church. Evidence that the Holy Spirit is regenerating people and those people are walking around and they are bringing the message, the exact same message that Jesus brought to the people when he was here on earth. And that's the point that Jesus starts to make when he gives these examples of Jonah and the queen from the south. What he's trying to say is, those groups of people, the, the, when you think of the Ninevites, let's, ju let's just go back to Jonah for a second, because Jonah is kind of a hilarious character to me, because he's like this prophet, he keeps presenting all of these truths that God is offering, and the people love, and the people respect him, and then God says, now I want you to take the same message that you've been taking to all of Israel about repenting from all your sin, and I want you to go tell it to those people. I want you to go tell it to those people that you don't like. And he says... I don't want to tell those people that story. They might repent. And if they repent, I know, you're, I know you're gracious and I know that you're going to save them. And I don't want them to be saved. I want you to wipe them off the face of the earth because they're evil. And this is Jonah's attitude. And, and after some struggle, after Jonah tries to go literally the opposite direction to the far side of the world, away from those people, God, who's not going to not get his way, we talked a little bit about that in the last couple of weeks. God sends this fish to swallow Jonah. Craziest story. And the fish literally drops Jonah off at the doorstep of Nineveh. Just, just leaves him there and says, and God says again, now, 
I want you to go and tell these people the truth of who I am, and I want you to tell them to repent. And he does. And what do the Ninevites do? They repent. And what Jesus is saying here is, the Ninevites didn't need some miraculous sign from me. These are people that you all would hate. These are the people that are not, not, they're not God's chosen people. They're not, they're not from our country. They're not our, they're not our family. And yet these people, when only presented with the truth of the gospel, have repented. And the point that Jesus is saying is, those same people are going to rise up. And they're going to condemn you. Because they didn't even need a sign. The gospel was precious enough to them. The truth of who God is. And the call to repentance changed them. And then he gives this other example from the Queen of the South who, who came up and she said, and she listened to the wisdom of Solomon. Again, she understood the truth of who God is that God had given to Solomon. She wanted to just hear that message, that truth. That was good enough for her. She wasn't looking for some miraculous sign. That's the point that he's trying to make here is that is that we can ask for a sign, we can ask for evidence and all of that, but what we're really trying to do is replace faith. But like Nineveh and like the queen, we only need to hear the truth of the gospel. That message ought to be sweet enough to us, ought to be exciting enough to us that we are affected and changed just by that truth. But there's another little thing that he says in those couple of verses in his response that I think are worth pointing out. At the end of verse 41, they it says, They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus is saying here is, you look back and you hold in high esteem all of these prophets, all of these guys who brought these messages and you say, we want prophets, we love prophets, they give us the message of God. And what he's saying is, I am so much greater than those prophets. He's saying, I am the greatest prophet. Just last week we talked about how, how they were responding when they said, could this be the son of David? And he's saying, yeah, I'm the son of David. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am your perfect king. And then he says at the end of verse 42, and behold, something greater than even Solomon is here. Solomon, though he was a king, was also the king who gave Israel the temple. And, and, and his reign kind of represented in their mind the, the, the bringing to perfection, like the epitome of the priesthood, where it was in its greatest place. It's, the, Israel was at its richest. The temple was beautiful and everything was working just as God had always wanted to see it work. And so in this moment, Jesus is not only claiming to be the Messiah, but he's saying as the Messiah, he is their perfect prophet. He is their perfect priest. He is their perfect king. He fulfills all of these roles that the Messiah was said to be. He's not limited to just one role. He's not here for just one thing. He's here to accomplish all of those things as a part of his ministry. So point number one. Get this in our minds. 
The gospel needs to be the thing that we kind of root ourselves in. We don't have to have, we don't have to have this proof or this sign or this piece of evidence. The truth that, that Jesus is our Messiah and he wants us to repent and follow him, that's good enough. The fact that he's saying, come on, come with me, that's what we need. That's what we want. Let's go ahead and read on. Matthew 12, we'll pick up in verse 43. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What? I'm not going to lie. When I was reading that, when I was getting there, I'm like, what are we going to say about that? That's that's an interesting metaphor. And I don't know exactly, I wasn't sure exactly what it was he was getting at. So, like I do, I went to other people who are smarter than me, and I said, so, so what is he talking about here? Um, because it seems like such an interesting jump, like we're talking about, hey, I'm the perfect prophet, I'm the perfect priest, the gospel's great, to talking about how it works when a demon gets cast out of somebody, and then it wanders around and comes back, and it brings friends. What's the point? What is he trying to say? What is he trying to accomplish with this? He's still, I think, trying to build the point that the gospel has to be the root of our everything. It can't just be that we have kind of cast out all of our wickedness and we've cleaned ourselves up and we're in good shape if we don't then fill ourselves with the truth and the realization of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants for us. It doesn't doesn't accomplish anything just to try to kind of cleanse ourselves, try to expel evil and just keep it out if we don't then replace it with gospel, if we don't then replace it with truth, if we don't then replace it with the Holy Spirit. And so you have to think this is a perfect example that Jesus can give because people have just witnessed him casting a demon out of a man. And what he's saying is, it doesn't do that man any good just to have that demon cast out of him if he doesn't then replace it with me if he doesn't then root himself in the gospel. Just to get rid of that evil doesn't do anything because that evil can come back and he's going to be seven times worse than he was before. And I think this is a really interesting truth for him to be explaining, especially to the Pharisees, who the more and more we get to know them, the more and more we see that these are the kinds of people who are just trying to eliminate the evil in their life and get by based on their holiness that they can earn just by kind of pushing out all of the bad, all of the evil, trying to separate themselves from the things that are gross to God without replacing anything. In another place, Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Like, they make themselves look good. They make themselves present to the public as holy, but inside they're still just empty. They're still just this empty death. And I think what he's trying to warn the Pharisees 
as well as us is that we can't just get by trying to be holy, just trying to be good, just trying to take whatever's evil in our lives and push it out and think that just by eliminating evil, that makes me right, that makes me good with God. Because that's not the truth of the gospel either, right? Because the truth of the gospel says that all of this happens because, because God is merciful and God is faithful and God loves us and God serves us and God does all of these things for us on our behalf because we cannot save ourselves. Because, because what is inside us, once we have sin in our lives, we can't do anything to get ourselves out from under that sin. And so repentance is more than just emptying ourselves of evil. When he's calling us to repent, we must replace that evil with the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. It doesn't do us any good to apologize, clean ourselves up. And I think this is an important idea for us. Just because we can clean ourselves up for a time does not truly solve anything. Just to say, I have a problem with drinking, or I have a problem with drugs, or I have a problem with looking at stuff online that I shouldn't look at, or I, just to say, I'm going to get those things out of my life isn't going to solve anything. Because as soon as you get those things out of your life, what's going to happen? He's saying, it's just going to come back and it's going to be seven times stronger. And you're going to be right back in it worse than wherever you, wherever you were when you started this. If we are not first rooting ourselves in the truth of the gospel. If we are not filling ourselves with the spirit of God. If we are not resting in Jesus and his work accomplished for us. I'm just going to say that again, I think, because I want us to get this, because, because it's so easy to think that all the church tries to do is try to keep me from being bad, or tells me the things that I should stop doing, or not do this. You know, we have, we have, we have guys group meetings and girls group meetings where we talk about the sin that's in our lives, or the things that we struggle with, and we try to say, we got to talk about how we're going to stop doing this, or stop doing this, or stop doing this, and it can't just be that, and I don't think it is, but if you aren't if you aren't tuned in and listening to what we're really trying to say in those moments, you could miss it. You could think, you could misinterpret that what we're really trying to do is just say, stop doing all of these things that are bad. But I don't want us to miss the fact that what we're trying to say is, fill yourself with Jesus, and he will help you push those things away permanently forever. If it doesn't start with Jesus, it's not going to fully accomplish anything. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So let's go ahead and move on. And we'll finish the chapter here. Pick up in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If I was one of the apostles, I'd be like, which one are you saying is your mom? That's just me. 
That's, that's just the way I think. So thinking about this, a lot of our identity gets wrapped up in our name, like our, our last name, our family name, a lot of times. Like, like when you hear, oh, you're one of the Clemenses, so you probably talk a lot. You know? You're one of the Clemenses. You probably interrupt people before they finish their sentence. To which I've, I've figured out what it actually is. It's not that I interrupt you. It's that I try to anticipate the end of your sentence as you are ending it, and sometimes I just get there a little early because I want to make sure I get the next sentence. That's all. I'm just trying to, trying to stake my claim on the next, the next phrase. But we do that, right? We, like, like we associate ourselves in our family groups based on this last name thing. Like, like you, know, you know this group of people because they all share a last name. And, and we do that so that we can kind of identify different groups of people. Uh, we, we identify ourselves different ways. We group ourselves either by last name or maybe even by the country that we're from or, or by what region of the country. Like, I am Southern. I say y'all, as all saved people should. Yun's is next. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying is instead of identifying ourselves based on our nation or based on our region or based on our name, based on our, our you know, our blood relation, our family, our actual last name, our identity should be wrapped up in the truth of we are the people that have been most, we have been affected by the gospel. We have been changed. We have been given a new family. And that's why I love that language that we were singing about earlier, that idea of adoption. That idea that God has taken we, this group of, this group of people who were not in his family, and he has adopted us. He has made us his family. That same level of, of close-knit relationship. Think about your family. For most of us, those are the people that, that you love the most, that you fight for the most, that you're willing to sacrifice the most for. They're the people you're willing to go through the most pain in order to serve. And what Jesus is saying is, there's an even closer, an even more powerful relationship that I am trying to pull you into here. And we as the church, we have to recognize this idea. That's why we, that's why, that's part of the reason that we're so excited about the idea that at four o'clock today, we're going to have a meeting with a group called Safe Families, who are going to come and they're going to explain to our church how we can help serve families in the area who need crisis, short-term foster care for their kids. Ways that we as the church can serve children in this area whose families are struggling through some sort of situation, and we can either welcome them into our house and, and take care of them and feed them and hopefully maybe even infuse a little gospel into their lives if they don't have it, or we as the church can support other families who are excited to do that. And that's why we're having this meeting here at 4, and that's why you've heard us saying it the last couple of weeks, but we really want you to come and hear what they're trying to accomplish. And I really love that ringtone. Okay. It was going to either be you or me. So it's all good. 
But, but that's, why we're, that's why the church is so passionate about the idea of adoption is because we have been adopted into the family of God. I mean, think about it. The, the Savior that we worship, the Messiah who came, was himself adopted on earth. He essentially had a stepdad in Joseph who, though he was not technically his father, helped to love and support and raise Jesus to take care of God's son for him while God was trying to accomplish something here on earth. So there's a reason that this kind of adoption language is so important to us because, because we were, we, the people in this room, we were not a family. But what he's trying to say is, I, don't, I, I know there are people out there who are saying they are my mother and my brothers, but look, these people, this is my family. These are the people that I'm going through. These are the people that I'm willing to fight for. These are the people that I'm willing to die for, that I'm willing to suffer for. That stands in a huge contrast from where the Pharisees were. Instead of being holy, instead of just pushing out evil and being good, Jesus wants us to be family. And with family does not always come perfect happiness, right? It's not, he's, not saying, he's not saying you're going to just push out all the sin, you're going to be family, and it's all going to be cheery, and it's going to be like episode six of the Brady Bunch or whatever. You know, like, like it's not necess- that doesn't necessarily guarantee happiness all the time because if you have family, you know that it's not always happiness. I love that that's the loudest amen I've ever gotten from you, Andy. (laughs) Think about your life. I think this is more than just he's trying to make a point about the truth of of what it means to follow the gospel, what it means to pursue him, and the idea is that, you know, you're leaving everything behind to follow Jesus and you're loving these people more and more and more. Yes, that sounds good, but let's think about this very practically. Think about the way that you structure your life. Think about the the, the people that you devote the most time to. Think about where that is in relation to the way that you, you are driven to spend time with the church, with the body of Christ. What does that really look like in your life? Because I think that this can be very, very practical for us. I honestly think he's saying... Treat the church like your family, not you're all family, you're all in this. No, treat the church like you would your family. So if, if you would quite often cancel everything because we're having spaghetti dinner at grandma's house, I got to cancel everything, I can't make plans, shouldn't we also feel that same way about the church? Oh man, I've got, I've got a spaghetti lunch at the church with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not going to give that time up. That time is very important, very valuable to me. I love these people and I want to be with them. I feel a little bit empty when I'm separated from them. Right? I'm going to talk about you now. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. So we were gone. We were gone for one day this weekend. One day. And the whole, like, the moment we dropped Ellie off at school on Friday, Tiff was, I miss my girl already. I want her, not that, you didn't cry. She didn't cry. 
She didn't cry. But it's like, I, it's like leading up to it, I don't want to leave her for a day. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm saying this is kind of how we're wired. But like, you feel that emptiness. She felt this emptiness when we were gone for one day, five hours away, one night, and you feel this emptiness, like I don't have this person in my life that I need. I think that's the way that Jesus feels about us. And I think that's the way that we as the church ought to feel about each other. I think we ought to feel this emptiness inside and we shouldn't be satisfied with, I can be away from the church for a while. I can be separate from that. I can, I can take some time off and I don't feel it. I don't feel this emptiness. I don't feel this void in my life. I think Jesus is saying, if I'm adopting you as sons and daughters, I'm adopting you to get, I'm bringing you together as brothers and sisters, and I want you to need each other just like you need your mom, your dad, your kid, your sibling, your great aunt, whoever. Whoever it is in your life that, that you feel that draw to, that's the way that Jesus is saying, I want you to feel in the church. Some of you may not have that kind of relationship with your family. You may be completely separated from your family, completely estranged. You don't ever talk to anybody. You feel like they have no love for you. You have no love for them. There's just this complete separation. You've completely severed that relationship. And to that, I would say, that's why this truth is that much more important to you. Because you have a family. You have people who love you. You have people who want to serve you. You have people who miss you when you are not here. And believe me, especially for those of you who have been here for a while, if you have been here for a while and you disappear for a week, we know. We feel that. Nick's shaking his head because he knows he's going to get a text if he's, like, not here for one week. But we notice when you're not here because we're having, we want to have that kind of relationship where we so desire to be together as the body of Christ that it hurts us when you're gone. And if you don't know what that relationship is like, that's what Jesus is offering. That's what Jesus is saying. Repent. Come follow me. Let me make you a part of my family. Let me get my arms around you and let me help you get to know a better, more committed body, a better family. Let me show you what family really can look like. And that's what we want for you. We want you, we want you to hear the truth of the gospel not just cast out all your evil stuff, but actually have your life filled up with that truth and be added to this family and know what it means to have this kind of relationship, not only with God, but with the church that he's bringing together. Let's pray.